A seismic shift has taken place in the world of work. Diversity and inclusion are no longer simply nice to have. These concepts are front and centre of how we do business. I'm Rachel Wilson, MD of diversity consultancy EW Group, and I'm excited to welcome you aboard season four of the Reworked podcast. Join me in conversation with the leading thinkers and doers on diversity as we unpick the fabric of working culture to discover how inclusion can become the golden thread that runs throughout all aspects of business. Sue Uniman, thank you so much for joining the Reworked podcast. Um, you are Chief Transformation Officer at Mediacom, uh, the UK's largest media agency. And I know that you've co-authored two books now, um, The Glass Wall, Success Strategies for Women at Work, which was published, I think, in 2016. That's right. Okay. And more recently, uh, the reason we're here to speak today, your book, uh, Belonging, the Key mm. to Transforming and Maintaining Diversity, Inclusion and Equality at Work. So belonging is this term which is going up and up the um, agenda, I think, in terms of DNI. Um, I'm really interested to talk to you more about that as a concept, what it means to you and yeah, why is it the key to transforming diversity and inclusion? So maybe we just start with hello and tell us a little bit about how the book came into being and uh, your interest in this subject. So, so actually, I mean, funnily enough, it's actually my third book. The, the, I, I had a, a book published in 2012 called Tell the Truth, which was about marketing. Um, and the second book, The Glass Wall, actually came about as my global CEO, Nick Lawson, who I've worked with for a long time at Mediacom. It was his idea because I, I was going to do a follow up to um, the book on marketing. And he said, no, no, you shouldn't write that book. He said, you should write a book about women at work. And to begin with, I wasn't sure it was a great idea because Sheryl Sandberg had just published Lean In. And I was sort of, you know, you know. Uh, up to a point it kind of resonated with me but there was I think it's a book for extroverts to be absolutely honest there were aspects of it that didn't resonate with me mm. and I also felt as though there was so much and so many shared experiences that um, weren't talked about in that that when I talked to everybody that I knew all the women that I knew at work who felt that, that their potential wasn't being fulfilled or who had struggled to overcome some of the kind of the systemic um, barriers in place um, in terms of sexism um, those stories hadn't been heard so I went to my co-author Catherine Jacobs CEO of Pearl and Dean and um, we set out to talk about the barriers that that stop the progression of talent in terms of women at work and um, the book was a, a, a bestseller it, it, it we did a lot of talks we did over 150 talks and a question kept coming up towards the end of the talks which Catherine and I were very struck by. So a woman in the audience would put her hand up and she'd say, I've got a question, it's not for Sue and Catherine, it's actually for the organisers of the talk. And she'd look around the room and she'd go, can I just, because in those days we were in rooms and maybe we'll get back to rooms again, but, and she'd look around the room, she'd go, can I just ask, where are all the men? And the organisers of the talk will go, well, it's International Women's Week or this is for the fast track of women or, you know, we thought we'd get together without any men. And she would say, well, if we're only talking to ourselves, how is anything going to change? And mm. this really struck us. And then we started to think about and research and uh, 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 explore all of the things that are stopping all kinds of people of talent reaching the top levels of management and politics and, and power in the UK and the US and beyond. 
and it became really clear that all of the effort that's being spent on DEI and, you know, I don't know the latest figure. I've, I've heard double the figure from when we published Belonging. So when we published Belonging, um, McKinsey said there was eight billion dollars spent worldwide on DEI. I've now heard that's doubled. I think it's possible that that's doubled because there's been an awful lot of emphasis on it, but we're not getting change. And the thing that's stopping change is that real sense of belonging at work. And you have to have diversity, you have to have inclusion, but if those diverse communities feel that they're just being invited in, you know, to, in a token way, if they don't feel they belong there, then you don't get the right culture. And Beyond that, what we uncovered with our investigation for the book was that there is a community that wields a huge amount of power who don't feel included in the belonging and inclusion movement at the moment. Mm. And those are the straight white men who are still middle aged men who are still in those top positions. And if they feel excluded, if they're going, oh, I'll get someone else to sort it out, then we're not going to get change. And so that was where the notion of the belonging book came in and this sense that the most important thing is to create conversations that are productive, that create actions, but that include absolutely everybody. Yeah, there's an irony there, isn't there? Very deep yeah. inside all of that, that background about the majority group not feeling included in the conversation. The, the inclusion movement has managed to create a situation that excludes the very people who mm. are currently holding the reins of power. Mm. But I think also everybody in a business, which is one of the things we said, everybody in the business has something to say about changing the culture of belonging. Everybody needs to work out how they can be a good ally, about how they can stand up for people, their colleagues, how they can, you know, positively challenge the status quo if it needs challenging, because however brilliant the head of HR or the head of people or the head of diversity is on the board, this is not something that one person or one department can do. Yeah. Everybody has, everybody, we all have a role. Absolutely. So inclusion and belonging are obviously very closely linked um, and there may be some overlap, but do you see... Do you see belonging as a more active version of in inclusion? Do you see it as more about being proactive and individuals uh, making a change? I think people try and create, include, invite people in. I think knowing that you belong deep down, that you belong in your workplace, that you're, you know, you're respected, that you are welcome, that you are wanted. That's a feeling that is internalized mm. and you can you you can empower it you can create the conditions of it but it's something that's different again I think from from inclusion people have to feel that they belong because if you feel you belong you care enough to change things you mm. care enough to challenge and you know I've heard you know sort of two sort of sort of parts of the spectrum really that the kind of the a straight white middle-aged man running an organization and I heard this more than once who said to me or, or my co-authors uh, Catherine and Mark said to us kind of privately the risk of me doing or saying something that's wrong and that being career-ending is so high now 
that I'm going to put this very good person in charge of inclusion and they're going to deal with it. Mm -hmm. And then we get statistics as we did for the research for the book uh, that was carried out for us by a business called Donata that say that one in two people don't think that their leader takes personal responsibility for inclusion and belonging. Well, that's because they're not taking personal active responsibility. It's because they're saying, I'm putting you in charge of it. So that's one end of the spectrum whereby you get people going, somebody else will deal with it. And then I've also heard more than one person go, if this business doesn't sort its act out, I'm out of here in terms of inclusion and belonging. And again, you know, my my positive provocation to to people who are thinking like that is yes but you have to do that you have to take responsibility for it as well mm. you have to be the person that challenges because actually you do have power in that situation particularly at the moment mm. and you talk in the book about the um, i think you call it is it the emotional load on yeah. more diverse members of staff teams for, for actually carrying the weight of this work where, rather than spreading it among yeah, pe people are tired and understandably tired. People are being asked to stand up and be poster people for, you know, whatever diverse group that they're supposed to represent. And we all know that it's hard enough some days coming to work at all, let alone showing up, showing up and being able to do the job that you're paid for, the job that you're KPI'd for, let alone having to represent your entire community you know, on a platform or, you know, in the spotlight. Um, and so this phenomenon of diversity fatigue, I think, is very real. Um, and the way it's alleviated is, you, you know what, you never forget. I was talking to a colleague about this the other day. Um, there's two things, you know, so so Maya Angelou, I think she's, she's often quoted as saying, people don't remember what you say, they remember how you feel. Mm. Well, I'll tell you when they remember exactly what you say when they hear something that is racist or sexist or homophobic, you know, so, those words people yeah. remember. But there's another set of words that people remember, and that's when someone stands up for you. And again, I can I can quote to you, you know, and I'm sure everybody can, um, especially every woman can, every time there's been something that's been just not the right thing to say about a woman in the room, whether it's me or whether it's a, a colleague, but I can also quote to you exactly when I've heard somebody stand up mm. that person. Um, and mm. these are these everyday, um, uh, you know, micro affirmations, actually. So so we hear a lot of talk about microaggressions and, and there's much better understanding of what a microaggression is. And it's that unconscious sometimes or, you know, sometimes it's called banter. You know, it's, it's oh, I didn't mean to, I didn't mean to upset you. Haven't you got a sense of humour? Um, to which, by the way, the best answer is I do have a sense of humour, actually. I, I, you know, however, that's not what we're discussing here. If you'd mm. like to have a conversation about my sense of humour, by all means, let's do that. But at the moment, what we're discussing is the fact that you've called something banter that I regard as not as banter. Um, I really like in the book how you are so clear and about this zero tolerance approach to yeah. inappropriate language, ban calling it banter, um, because I just really appreciated that there wasn't any fluffiness in your in your book around that. You were just very clear that that's it's not acceptable in the workplace. It's not what we come to work. It's not what we should how should we should behave when we're on salary. No, and there's there are some sectors and advertising is one of them where banter and I'm doing inverted commas here for mm. people on the podcast um, covers an, an awful lot. 
and as we say in the book one man's banter is another person's hideous daily put down mm. and it's 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 not acceptable but the person that coined the term microaggressions also coined the term microaffirmations yeah which are the which is a much less known term and, and I'd like it to get you know amplified because those are every time you stand up for somebody every time you kind of say well hang on a second I think you've missed that person's point you know can I ask you can I ask us all to to listen again to, to what Rochelle has said and I think those moments are the things that help to change culture and we've all got the power to do that and sometimes by the way it's easier to do that on behalf of somebody else than it is to do it on your own behalf sometimes you're kind of a bit crushed in the moment um but if you can listen out for when you can do that with other people i think if we all do that then that makes the load less heavy i hope definitely uh, yes I, I think micro affirmations are really a really powerful concept because they don't require anyone else's input any resource any budget they're just the things you can just start doing straight away yes don't wait for the training just yeah. just yeah, yeah. Exactly. So coming back to um, the majority group, as we often would think of them in the workplace, your white male, straight white male, possibly. Um, and that group that I know you touched upon in your research and got some really, I also love in the book, all the anecdotes that are peppered throughout as well. And really, they bring it to life really well. Um, I just want to pick up on that point that you made uh, a little bit earlier about as well about leaders missing that opportunity to engage with diversity and inclusion on a personal level and to be authentic and have develop their own story you know just as you say just sort of handing it over to hrd or diversity lead they're missing an opportunity aren't they with to, to, to kind of walk the talk and and live it and and be authentic i think i think that's right and and two things about that one is is that there's deloitte research that we quote in the book that says that something like 45% of straight white men also feel as though they have to cover at work. So they have to pretend to be other than who they are, you know, join in with the banter or, or you know, talk about their enthusiasm for a sport or a, or a ski trip or something that they really don't have those values. Mm. And in that sense, if you lump them in with the rest of us, suddenly the majority is not the majority, actually. And I do think that the way that work is structured and, and you know, you're all about reimagining the workplace, right? And it's, it, it's long overdue in my view. The workplace still is structured in the way that it was when it was invented in the late 19th century. I mean, if you, if you were to take, if you were to transpose somebody probably from kind of Charles Dickens times to a, to a modern, you know, um, setup, sure they'd be really surprised about the pcs and the, and perhaps now at the moment that they're working from home but that idea that a set of very senior people stroll around observing people who are doing the work you know that that that, that would really resonate and it's time that we reimagined it we've been going through a great experiment of reimagining the workplace the the issue now is reimagining again for a hybrid environment um and somewhere where where you know people don't lose that sense of belonging because they're not with their colleagues in the office every day. Um, so I think that's a, a big piece of work that we've all got in front of us um, at the moment. But also, you know, you have to be authentic as a leader. Otherwise, you know, people can tell, people can tell authenticity. Mm -hmm. But 
you, we have to also be allowed to make mistakes. So I understand why those men said to me, I feel as though the slightest misspeak could be career ending mm. because it is very difficult at the moment to acknowledge, you know, there's a there's a there's a there's a, a sense. And again, I think it's a very, you know, it's a wrong thing to say. But more than one of them said to me, I feel as though it's a witch hunt out there for people like me. Well, it isn't. And the irony is, of course, is the witch hunts that were real were middle aged women across Europe in the Middle Ages. Um, it's not a witch hunt, but I understand why people, why those men might feel that. And there's a very interesting um, experiment going on in the New Orleans Police Department. It's called Epic Policing. Ethical policing is courageous. And it was devised actually by a, a Holocaust survivor who, after the murder of George Floyd last year, he's an academic, he, int he introduced this idea that all you're ever trained for in the police force is how to um, disarm or shoot somebody in a, in a moment of crisis. You get no training when all that adrenaline's flowing in how to be corrected, at how to, to hear that you're, you might be overreacting, in how to respond to a reassessment of the situation. And so what this epic policing thing is, is, is it's training people in that. And I thought, I've never been on management training in my very long career that has ever mentioned how to own a mistake, mm. how to accept, you know, hang on a second, that didn't go that well. And I thought that would be a very interesting exercise for leaders, for managers, mm. um, because People do feel like if they make the slightest mistake, they are going to get hounded out of office. Um, and while people are worried about that, they're not going to be able to be authentic. Mm. Uh, so we need to solve this. This is a kind of real problem that we need to solve, I think. Absolutely. Um, I think that 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 rings true from our experience as well, that difficulty that senior leaders obviously have in be being able to courageously authentically stand up and say I, I don't know the answer to this and I'm learning as I go and I'm making mistakes but I'm trying I'm I am I'm evolving and I'm doing everything I can to learn and change and there needs to be a space for leaders to, to, to say that I think and also there needs to be an understanding of um uh, diversity that isn't immediately visible yes as well. um yeah so I know we're, we're short on time. I just want to maybe ask, ask one real quick final question. Um, there's so many real examples in the book and I really encourage everyone to go go and read read the book and get delved deeper. But could you give us one takeaway practical step? Uh, you've mentioned micro affirmations. Is there anything else that you think we should be focusing on in order to ramp up levels of belonging? Yeah, work with your team. So we do some exercises and, we, and so the, there's lots of practical exercises in the book. And one of the exercises is to talk to the team that you meet with regularly and actually ask each other. What do you like on a good day? What do you like on a bad day? Do you like to be, you know, asked a question of in in our weekly meeting or would you rather wait until you've got a fully formed opinion or would you, you know, how do you like to be included? Because that sense of creating a belonging for your particular team 
Mm. We can work at that. We can all work at that. And again, that's not something that happens normally. And if you think about, you know, footballing analogy, if you think about a football team, that's what they do, right? They they work out when to pass the ball, who mm. needs to be supported. One of the stories that we tell is about um, Xavi, um, who plays for Barcelona, who sums up his role in the football team as receive, pass, offer. So I am there to receive the ball, to pass the ball, and then to offer to take the ball back. What a brilliant way of defining your role. He's not there to score goals. He's not there to tell people what to do. He's there so that there's always somewhere safe to pass the ball back to. Mm. Who's that person in the team? It might not be the person who's the noisiest, but it might be one of the most valuable roles. And I think understanding what those roles are and how you get the best out of each other that's something, again, that we can all do tomorrow and make a big difference. That's brilliant. Thank you so much, Sue, for spending some time with me this afternoon. Um, really look forward to continuing the conversation. You're active on Twitter, so we'll link to your uh, Twitter handle in the show notes. And um, thanks again. And let's hope we can we can all work together to continue to evolve, evolve this culture towards those and meet those deeply held values of belonging it's um it's such important work so thank you thank you very much i hope this month's episode has brought you new ways of thinking about inclusion at work and ideas for what you might do next in your organization check out the episode description for social media accounts for us and for our guests we'll be back again next month this is an independent advert free podcast and we rely on your support to keep making these broadcasts We'd love it if you could subscribe, like and review us. See you next time.